Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand for our opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we ask you to be with us now here as we're gathered in your name. Please send out your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds, to touch our hearts, to open our ears, to hear what message you have prepared for us tonight, and to welcome it into our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Father Kevin. Our speaker tonight, uh, Father Robert Spitzer, was ordained a Catholic priest in 1983 and completed a doctorate in philosophy in 1988 at Catholic University of America. A world-renowned scholar, author, and lecturer, Father Spitzer has served as president of Gonzaga University, founded seven major national institutes, and produced seven television series for EWTN. Father Spitzer currently heads the Magis Institute and the Spitzer Center of Ethical Leadership. His latest book, Ten Universal Principles, considers the natural law principles upon which our society is built. Please join me in welcoming Father Robert Spitzer. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Well, I'm really truly honored uh, to be with all of you this evening. And uh, uh, as uh, Deacon Sabatino just said, I will be speaking on this book uh, this evening, uh, The Ten Universal Principles. It's a brand new book uh, from Ignatius Press, and I have been just uh, working with groups here who are coming in for the March for Life, and I, I saw, met some of you already who are here for the march, and uh, um, hopefully this will kind of galvanize your spirits as we uh, go forth. What I uh, would want to say to begin with is what's the purpose of this book, and what's the purpose of an institute which um, um, we have that kind of supports this book and makes um, high school curricula uh, available uh, from the book. Before I do that, I want to give you two websites. The first is healingtheculture.com. If you like the contents of this book that we'll talk about tonight, and you're interested in getting this into your high school, you'd want to go to healingtheculture.com. Uh, there's a woman there, Camille Polly. There's uh, introduced her uh, to her husband and. Uh, I have to say uh, that she does tremendous work with high school curricula. What's the purpose of the book? I'm going to give you three prejudices I have about uh, what I'm going to call young people, from uh, 14 years old to 35 years old. And then I'm going to show you why this book, I think, will help them to become pro-life, because they are in desperate need of a pro-life philosophy. What I mean by that is a deepened pro-life education I'll just uh, give you my three prejudices right now. Number one, I do not think we can use faith terminology, religious terminology, etc., in our first blush of talking to the students about pro-life. You can in your families and so forth. But what I'm talking about is the average kid or the average young adult from 15 to 35 to start trying to do this by saying the church says so 
is going to be a real tough go. How do I know? I've been in the education business now for 45 years. I know what works and what doesn't work. You can bring them around to the Scriptures and the Church. The minute they see the wisdom of the position, you can actually use the issue to bring them right more deeply into the church. And so I'm just pleading with you, just trust me for a second. Allow the issue and allow the philosophy behind the issue to expose the wisdom of the Catholic Church and lead them to a deeper faith. Don't say initially, you should do it, the church says so. Believe me, if they already believe that, you don't have to convert them at all. That's me, right? Okay. If that's what the church holds, I'm there. But there are a lot of kids who are not there. So that's the first prejudice. Second prejudice, I, I will uh, say, kids want a sophisticated case. Young adults want a sophisticated case. There is a tremendous fear out in the population that they will be called naive, that they will be called just deferential, that they will be called stupid. Instead, why play to the prejudices about us and why force our kids to have to go through martyrdom on their first defense of pro-life? Give them a case that will truly foil their enemies. They're not going to understand all the nuances of the case I will give you tonight. They will not. But they will know that one exists. And they will be able to point to the resources. They will be able to conjure up a few points but the one thing is our case is so much more sophisticated than our opposition's case in terms of the philosophy of law, in terms of the kind of metaphysical and physical background, in terms of the epistemology. We are so far above these people. It almost makes the opposition look moronic if we are able to get the case out there to the kids so they can use it. That's my second prejudice. It should be sophisticated. Do not underestimate their intellectual capacity to grasp it or to be impressed by the depth, the perception of the Catholic Church, although it comes to them in the form of secular principles. Of course, the origin of the principles is St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, Jesus Christ, Moses. But of course, they are secular principles, and they're all accepted by the secular culture. The third prejudice that I have just to... Uh, uh, going into uh, in this area is that I don't think we can do this from the vantage point of uh, just the Roe v. Wade decision alone. Uh, when you take a case in isolation, it's really hard for kids to sort of see it or young adults to see it for what it is when you just take it by itself. Remember what old Plato's thought about a dialectic? Put it in relation to something else similar or different and then you can see it in relation to something else. Uh, this book, uh, I chose the Dred Scott decision, which I'll talk about in a moment, to be the foil, to be the parallel case, because I think that just about everyone from 14 to 35 holds one thing for certain. Slavery is an objective moral evil. And I think when I just expose to them how awful that Dred Scott decision is, I think it just makes them go, oh, and then to show them that the Roe versus Wade decision violates every single solitary universal principle of civilization in the same way the Dred Scott decision does, makes the same logical errors that the Dred Scott decision does, and quite literally undermines the capacity for true 
progress in culture and civilization. In the same way that the Dred Scott decision does, it knocks them out. I hate to say this, but they are going to believe, first blush, slavery is a moral evil, but I'm not so sure about, you know, abortion. A lot of kids will say that. I think we can completely obviate the problem by simply setting it up in line with the Dred Scott decision. Last but not least, those are my prejudices. Here are my presuppositions. For us to try and argue this case in a sophisticated way, we are going to have to restore three things back to our culture which are being lost daily. And by the way, this is not just happening with deconstructionist and postmodern philosophy and literature in the university levels. It's seeping down into the high schools big time already. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, postmodernism is very, very, very much ensconced in our culture. But what I'd like to suggest at the same time is I think we have an approach to doing this, but here are the three principles, the three kinds of overriding hermeneutical principles we're going to have to consider. Number one, there is an objective truth. Number two, there is an objective morality or ethics. And number three, natural rights are different from constitutional rights, and natural rights exist. And these three things are crucial. Our founding fathers certainly did believe in them, but practically every philosopher throughout history believed in them. We live in a unique age. But I think we have to do some restoration because it is very difficult to try and make a defense without saying that some opinions are better than other opinions, that some moral truths are better than other supposed moral, quote-unquote, truths, etc. So we need to get it off the ground. So what's this book? This book is an attempt to make a convergence of all of that. It's trying to get the slavery issue and juxtaposition to the pro-life issue. It's trying to get the, a sophisticated case that exposes logical errors. You know, Get it out there. It's trying to get these three high objectives of natural rights, objective truth, and objective morality, trying to get it out there all in one fell swoop. And that's the objective of the book, and that is the method to our madness at healingtheculture.com, and that is what I would like to address very briefly with you here tonight so you can see the kinds of case, the kinds of education that we're developing now in the pro-life movement to move ahead. Listen, our opposition is in their dogmatic slumber. And this is the time when they believe that they have literally captured the vocabulary, the conceptualization, the idea base. They think they have it all. And they think they can run right over us and take our youth by storm. But we have a very good case. And as Kant observed a long time ago, when your opposition is sleeping nicely because of dogmatic certainties that they think they have brought to the culture, it is time to put the knife in their hearts. No, it's a death image on a pro-life talk, but... <laughs> I could be excused, you know, just trying to paraphrase. Okay. But here's the thought. Point number one. I'm going to just go through three principles of objective truth. I'm going to, as I go along, I want to talk about the pro-life implications, compare it to the Dred Scott decision, 
keep going along. You can get the methods of the madness as we move. I'm going to go through three principles of objective morality, three principles of justice and natural rights, and one principle called the principle of beneficence, which is the golden rule, which we'll talk about toward the end of the, uh, the talk. Let me move first to the three principles of objective truth. I walk into a classroom all the time. Um, freshman classroom, sometimes senior classroom in philosophy. And you can say sometimes to people, do you think that some opinions are better than others? And so well, maybe maybe you can, you know, but about 30% of the class go, not sure, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Well, what criteria would you use to show that one opinion is better than another opinion? That a criterion that you think, for example, uh, might be utilized and desired by your opponent. That's right, dead silence. That's exactly what you get. They have no idea how they would defend that one opinion is better than another, that what's the criterion that they would use? So, of course, I start off with an obvious example. I say, okay, is Einstein, does he have a better opinion than Newton about the physical universe? And, of course, you know what the kids say, generally? Yeah. And I would say, well, how do you know that Einstein has a better opinion about the physical universe than Newton? Well, he lived later, and he knew more. But they know. They, they say, okay, they knew more. And some smart kid in the class will say, well, he knew about the Michelson-Morley experiment, or he knows about the orbit of Mercury. The key thing, though, is he knows more. And I said, that's your first criterion, everyone. The opinion or theorem which explains the most data wins. The opinion or theorem which explains the most data is the one that is better because it explains more data. An opinion that doesn't explain data, givens, observational evidence, is not worth much at all. Now, if you look at the pro-life movement, it's very clear that our notion of personhood is exceedingly sophisticated. We have theories of personhood which explain Lots and lots of data. And if you look at the Roe versus Wade decision or the Dred Scott decision, one thing becomes patently obvious to you. That the Supreme Court doesn't know what a person is. They can't tell you what a person is from any kind of empirical data. They don't want to do that because if they really did use today's human genomics, right? And you can tell from a DNA sequencer that what exists before you in a single-celled zygote is a human being, which could be none other than human, so it's not some other animal, and it's a completely unique human being, frankly, with a sequencer. I can tell you what he or she's going to look like when they're 30. You can actually draw out their characteristics. But the Supreme Court will not consider this. They will not consider all kinds of other data. For example, the fact that being of human origin was never separated off from personhood, right? You get the point. What's a person? A being of human origin deserves protection under the law. This only comes into question with the Dred Scott decision and later with the Roe v. Wade decision. This should already give you some ominous, ominous stuff. You go, why is the Dred Scott decision so powerful? 
The Dred Scott decision of the United States Supreme Court was a unanimous decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in which the justices declared, and we'll see this phrasing again in Roe v. Wade, we have searched the Constitution to seek out whether the Negro has any rights under the Constitution, and failing to find any rights supported for the Negro, and furthermore, seeing that they have come from savages and must therefore be subhuman, we rule then that the Negro should be subjugated to the superior race. Unquote. Your Supreme Court unanimously at work. This shocks kids. They can't believe that this is actually subjugated. Yeah. To the superior race? That's exactly right. You're kidding me. No, no, I'm not kidding you. And by the way, that was a very popular opinion during the time. Now, you look at that for just two seconds, and you go, well, how did that happen? We'll see in a moment. First thing is, there's a separation between being of human origin and a person, which is a being of human origin deserving of protection under the law. You have to make a specious distinction between human being and person. Fred Scott does it. Roe v. Wade does it. That's how they get it off the ground. And how do they make that distinction? The Negro has come from savages, seeing them come off the boat, positive proof that they must be subhuman. Couldn't have had anything to do with the slave traders, that's for sure. But the key thing is, at the same moment, you can feel the case being built, but the notion of personhood is being left behind in the dust. The view of personhood in Dred Scott decision and in the Roe v. Wade decision is a narrow, little, undefined, unjustified, non-definition. And we are letting the court get away with it when in point of fact, we've got so much data to support our view of personhood that even, I swear, a ninth grader can look at the difference between our view of personhood and the court's view of personhood and go, where's the meat? What's the deal? It's true, the church has a much deeper, sophisticated position and even takes into consideration empirical data. Secondly, the second principle is, of course, the principle of non-contradiction, which if any of you had Jesuits when you were in school, you will have had this drilled into you. Contradictions are bad because contradictions are impossible. Impossible propositions are false. That's as simple as I can make it. A man is not six foot three and six foot four in the same respect at the same place and time. I can tell you this now without having to do an empirical search throughout the world. How did I know this? It's impossible. You can go real fast back and forth. But you cannot make them be in the same respect with the same place and time. And of course, Aristotle articulated this for his students. He said, avoid contradictions, please, because contradictions are impossible and possible things are false. We don't like false opinions. We like true opinions. Now, let's turn to the Supreme Court. I'm just going to skip the Roe v. Wade. You can get the same thing, Dred Scott. Did you know that unborn children can inherit? Did you know that? That's protection under the law, ladies and gentlemen. 
What are you declaring the moment you say that an unborn infant has the right to inherit? What are you declaring? They're persons. They're human beings, beings of human origin, deserving. Deserving protection under the law. You're protecting their rights under the law. Number two, did you know that unborn human beings can actually sue parents for injury that happened in utero? And then when they grow up, they can say, hey, you did this to me. This was neglect, and now I'm going to sue you. Did you know you can do that? Who can do that? Only persons can do that. By the way, do you realize that if you get into a car accident and your unborn baby is somehow injured, that you could sue that other motorist on behalf of your unborn baby, even though you yourself we're not permanently injured? Who can do this? Only persons. And then the Supreme Court makes the bald-faced declaration, the majority of the Supreme Court, makes a bald-faced declaration that there is no precedent for definition of personhood prior to the Roe versus Wade decision. This is really confusing. And therefore, they're going to declare that personhood does not exist. And therefore, the appeal of Texas will fail. What do we call this in simple terms? Thank you, a contradiction. If this were in a Logic 101 paper, you know what you'd do. The old F coming right out. This is illogical. But the Supreme Court said it. Shouldn't the contradiction be correct? Nay, nay. Children can point out contradictions to Aristotle, and he will have to succumb. Let's take the third definition, objective evidence. Of course, the whole idea of objective evidence is we want something that's publicly corroboratable to be introduced, right? We don't want mere opinions, mere subjective will. We don't want mere human agendas to be ruling the legal day. What we want instead is good objective evidence which can be verified by the sense if you have eyes better than mine, you'll have no problem saying the book is in Spitzer's hands. Sensorial data is fine. Scientifically measured data is fine. We have a priori evidence, which is also fine. That's the proofs of mathematics and logic where you find out a squared plus b squared equals c squared, but it doesn't equal c cubed. And you know what? You can know that that is true before you cause a bridge to collapse because of proofs. Now, what's my point? Stick with objective truth. And if you don't have objective truth in serious cases, don't render a decision. Why? Merely subjective truths are mere single opinions. Arbitrarily asserted, arbitrarily denied. The point is you have no evidence to stand on. When the Supreme Court declares... We don't know what a person is. We think that the unborn infant is not a person, even though we have case precedents again and again and again to the contrary that dictate that the unborn infant is definitely a person. And then you turn right around and you declare from that by sheer fiat of the will of the court, making no recourse to an objective evidence for the presence of a human being, being born from human parents, or having a completed genome at a single-celled stage. Nothing, nothing but sheer fiat and sheer will 
to declare that a human being, a human person deserving of protection under the laws does not exist is utterly bizarre. Let me tell you what the Supreme Court did the minute they said that. And by the way, the same thing they did to black people in the uh, Dred Scott decision. How did they pull it off? They shifted the burden of proof. See, prior to Dred Scott and prior to Roe v. Wade, the government was responsible to prove that someone was not a person in order to violate their natural rights. In other words, their right to life and liberty in the case of Roe v. Wade and Dred Scott, respectively. So the government had to prove they were not a person in order to violate the rights. Now look at what Dred Scott and Roe v. Wade both did in the same language. They shifted the burden of proof to the potential victim. Now the Negro has to prove that he is a person to get rights. Now the unborn have to prove that they are persons to get rights. This is very backwards. And this is very harmful. And this should be pointed out that if this were to happen in any other context besides popular social agendas, in other words, persecution of black people 120 years ago or persecution of unburned infants today, if it's not popular, people would be outraged. But the tremendous fallacy has never been pointed out. They lacked objective evidence. They made a judgment based on shifting the burden of evidence. It's a travesty. When our kids hear these things, they're shocked. They quite literally have never heard them before. The decisions have been around for years. But by the restoration of these three universal principles of civilization, going back to Plato and Aristotle, honestly, you can do this. You can do this. Secondly, just three principles of ethics. I think we need to get to an objective ethic, but I don't think we can start with even the Ten Commandments, honestly. You know, kids will take a solipsistic stand anytime they can, you know. How do you know stealing is wrong? Maybe you know, been around the classroom for a long time. The key thing is, don't start there. Start with the most obvious minimalistic principle of ethics so that at this particular point, they can't really even deny the certainty of the principle of non-maleficence. What's the principle of non-maleficence? Fancy word of saying not evil, right? The principle of avoid evil, avoid harm to others. You know the silver rule and the golden rule. Remember, the golden rule doesn't have the knots. The silver rule has the knots. The silver rule states very simply, do not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you. Well, how can we state it in a contemporary fashion? Avoid unnecessary harm or evil to others. Minimize unavoidable harms. Avoid unnecessary harms. And that's minimalistic ethics. Why would people universally agree on this? Well, first, I can tell you why Thomas Hobbes, the great utilitarian, agreed with this. Because he thought if you didn't have the principle of non-maleficence, you couldn't have a social contract, and therefore you couldn't have a society. All you can have is barbarism. And of course, Hobbes thought, well, we do want a society. 
I'll go along with that one. Number two, I can tell you why Plato and Aristotle wanted it. Because if you don't have the principle of non-maleficence, you cannot have justice even in the most basic sense. To do an unnecessary harm to another human being, to walk down the street, shoot him for no reason at all, that's unjust. It's never right to do an unnecessary harm to others because you are taking from them what is not yours to take. Number three, I can tell you a good reason why you might want to avoid it personally. If you have friends who come up to you and go, gee, Bob, I really need to, to do unnecessary harm to you in order to feel fulfilled in life. My thought would be, run, Bambi, run, because he is a sociopath, right? I mean, it's clear, right? You would run. What's the point? It makes no practical sense whatsoever to violate the principle of non-maleficence. That's why you get even the hedonists, the brute utilitarians, the Benthamites. They all agree on one principle. For whatever reason, need for society, injustice, personal safety, whatever it may be, we shouldn't do unnecessary harms to other people. Everybody agrees on that. And at the end of the day, you can convince kids that's their first objective moral principle. And yes, the sociopaths are not going to agree. But my one thought is, I wouldn't develop your culture and society on the opinions of sociopaths. Now, once we establish this, we must ask ourselves the question, is the Dred Scott decision or the Roe v. Wade decision, is this unnecessary harm to others? And of course, our opposition feeling the need for sophistical argumentation in order to get themselves out of the obvious, yes, they will try to say, well, I can think of times when abortions are necessary. And of course, because I can think of one time when an abortion is necessary for me, I am going to say that that is legitimate enough to indicate that uh, this is not an unnecessary harm for everybody else. And here's why we need logic because that's arguing from a particular to a universal. There may be a case, a hard case indeed, where you might find that an abortion is necessary to save another life or something of that nature, and even where the principle of double effect might hold. But you can't generalize from that one particular to the universal of the entire society. That's backwards again. You can't argue from a particular to universal. In 99.999999% of the cases, abortions are not necessary. Now, you get a second kind of sophistry that gets introduced. And the second kind of sophistry that gets introduced is, of course, the whole idea of, well, we're just protecting a woman's privacy rights. In order to do that, it is necessary to do the evil of abortion. We're very, very sorry. Let's just face facts right now. In secular terms, there has always been hierarchies of goods and evils. Genocide has always been the number one evil. You shouldn't go around killing whole populations of innocent people. Just shouldn't be doing that. Number two, murder of an innocent. 
Number three, you, you get the points. But the point is, we can justify this according to the necessity criterion, everyone. Any right which is necessary for the very possibility of another right must be a higher right. For example, if the right to life is necessary for the very possibility of the right to liberty, then the right to life must be the higher right. It must be the one that takes precedence over the right to liberty. And the same thing with liberty rights and property rights, right? I mean, the Dred Scott decision. We know that liberty rights are higher than property rights because liberty rights are necessary for the very possibility of property rights. If I tell you, you can own all the private property you want, I just get to own you. I get your property too. What's my point? The minute you have a hierarchy of evils that you can use objective evidence like a necessity criterion to establish, you are obligated to use it. And if you do use it and you find that killing an infant is going to be far more heinous, worse than violating a liberty right of a woman, you have to, have to decide in favor of the infant. You have to decide in favor of the life right. In other words, you are obligated to do the least harm and the least evil, which makes the abortion harm an unnecessary harm. Returning back to the principle of non-maleficence, you can see very clearly that the 50 million children who have been murdered up to this point, they truly are victims, unnecessary harms. It's a genocide. It's a literal genocide which has taken place completely ignoring the principle of non-maleficence. There's a secondary violation of the principle of non-maleficence. The principle of non-maleficence says, you know, when you're in doubt about a situation of life and death, you should always err in favor of life. Yes, that would be good. Otherwise, it would be what? A violation of the principle of non-maleficence. You would be doing an unnecessary harm if you did not know, in a situation between life and death, if you didn't know what you were doing, so if you are in doubt about whether personhood exists, sanctioning the killing of that person, that's life and death, is clearly a violation of the principle of non-maleficence. Do our students understand this? Yes, they do. Does using the big words intimidate them? No, they get used to it. They're pretty smart kids out there, and they do get used to it. I think the case can be established logically that we have a real problem on our hands. When the Supreme Court was in doubt about the rights of the Negro or the black person, and it had complete doubt about this, searched the Constitution to see if there were rights there, and it really did not know, it should have erred in favor of the liberty of those human beings. Enough said. Secondly, the great principle of consistent ends and means. I can go into a classroom today, and truly, honestly, 
I can say, the end does not justify the means. Joe, do you understand that? Joe was just looking at you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, sort of, yeah, I think so. Well, it's simple. You can't use an evil means to pursue a good end. You can't use a harmful means to pursue a good end. With the sole exception of sometimes when you're trying to prevent a greater evil. You can use an evil means to prevent a greater evil end in certain cases, but you have to follow the principles in this book, which are articulated in the just war theory, for example, the five conditions that need to be met. You have to be very careful when you're using the lesser of two evils arguments. But it is a legitimate uh, caveat to the principle self-defense, just war, and so forth, but be very careful how you use it. But in any case, the key thing is you can't use an evil means to get to a good end. And if you use the principle of greater evil, make sure it's really a greater evil. And denying a woman the use of her body for nine months is not a greater evil than killing an innocent human life, period. It cannot be justified. Consistent ends and means. If the means is kill the child in order to get to the supposed good of protecting the liberty rights of women, you cannot argue this legitimately. It's completely illogical. It is immoral because you are using an evil means, a much more evil means to get to a good, which is not a prevention of a greater evil, but in fact, is really the prevention of a much, much, much lesser evil. And that problem has been pointed out by a lot of pro-lifers, but it certainly has not been acknowledged by the Supreme Court. I want to get into one sophistry here that commonly comes up that our opponents introduce. They indicate that clarity is a very important criterion for establishing the legitimacy of their position. Women are bigger and clearer than unborn children. The unborn children, you'd have to use intrauterine photography or you'd have to use, you know, some form of ultrasound in order to see. Plus, it's much smaller. Women are much bigger. And so it's clearly women have greater rights than small people and uh, hidden people because they're clearer. We all know that this is fallacious because clarity is in the eyes of the beholder. I must tell you, with my vision the way it is, this book is clearer to all of you out there than it is to me. You don't want to be basing the existence of the book on my vision. I teach relativity physics. I put the Lorentz-Einstein transformation on the board. Some of my students come up to me and say, I don't get it. And so I give them extra help when they don't get it. But I don't say Lorenz and Einstein were wrong because it's unclear to my students. Here's the thought. Consistent ends and means violated again and again by both decisions. Third ethical precept. And you might think to yourself when you hear this precept of full human personhood, full human potential, you might think, well, that's not an ethical principle. Oh, yes, it is. We need to have this principle in every single ethical proposition that we have. Because, you know, the most heinous violations of the principle of non-maleficence, you know how they occur? 
they occur because people try to exclude other people from personhood for specious reasons. They occur because other people try to deprive people of full protection under the laws by accusing them of being subhuman or subperson or something of that nature for specious reasons. This principle comes about because of a Dominican, unfortunately, uh, Bartolome de las Casas. No, I'm just kidding. He was a truly great, great monk. Was a lawyer prior to becoming a Dominican. When he um, embarked on his case, essentially for the Indians in the New World, he was debating a fellow by the name of Sepulveda. And uh, there were, you know, there were several million Indians at stake here, because right, the Indians were already living on the reductions. I don't know if you saw the, the movie The Mission. But that's a very true film in many ways. That They had aqueducts. They had great walls around their collective gardens. They had huge housing projects, that irrigation, and all kinds of things. So they had no immunities. I mean, literally, if they were to go back out into the jungle or become enslaved, honestly, these, these Indians would have died by the hundreds of thousands. And in fact, we know in history they did. The point is, it all came down to a debate between this Dominican friar and this fellow Sepulveda Sepulveda argued the following. We can tell, and here's again, that the Indians are savages. That same word comes up again. We can tell that the Indians are savages. They're subhuman. And because they are subhuman, we should not and cannot treat them as full human beings. And of course, Las Casas gets up and says, you know, pray tell, sir, what is your evidence? that they're savages and subhumans. And Sepulveda says, it's very clear. Look at their stage of development. Their mathematics is just not up to par with what we have in Europe. And look at the violin that they made. We have superior varnishes compared to these Indian varnishes. Look at this fine violin by Stradivarius. Las Casas waits and endures the thing until it's finally he stands up and he says, everything you have mentioned is mere historical accident. It has nothing to do with whether the Indians are human or not human, and whether they will reach full human potential according to European terms, or perhaps far superior than the European. The fact is, it's mere historical accident. And the reason we know it is, they've already built their walls, they've built their aqueducts, they have the most sophisticated irrigation systems already. They're building in the musical instruments. They're perfect, beautiful instruments. Okay, so the varnish isn't as good. So they don't quite get the stage of mathematics, but they will catch up in a few short years. Stage of development indicates nothing about humanity and personhood. Repeat, stage of development indicates nothing about humanity and personhood. It's a mere historical accident. And then he comes out with the crescendo, right? He comes out and he says, if you do this, if you render them to be subhuman and enslave them and kill them, you will be thought to be the bloodthirstiest culture and civilization that ever existed. History will judge you for the violation of the principle of non-maleficence minimalistic ethics history will judge you to be the savages and not the Indians. Sepulveda wins. Of course, you know the rest of the story. Spaniards and Portuguese slave traders go in, blast down the walls, burn up the farms, annihilate the cathedrals, 
the irrigation. Indians are forced out into the jungles, die of the diseases because they have no immunities. Two million Indians are probably dead within about three years. And the travesty, as we look back on it, was all predicted by Las Casas and could have all been prevented had one simple principle been observed. We need to look at humanity as being grounded in objective evidence. Today, we don't even, these guys are catching up, or this baby will develop into a full-born human being. And But by the way, a born human being, you know, and it's still in a stage of development for another 18 years, right? I mean, when do you want to kill him now? Oh, by the way, right, Peter Singer uses the same logic to justify infanticide. Fine Princeton professor over there. Now, the key thing, of course, is you look at that, and of course, every single time you try to make a development argument or a stage of development argument in order to establish humanity, humanity has, why? Is somebody more human at the third trimester than the second trimester? Are they more human at one year than third trimester? Are they more human at 18 than they are at 15? Is, is somehow their humanity, are they more human? Of course not. Stage of development is a mere historical accident. And we should look at their full human potential, and we must give them the full personhood they enjoy according to the stage that they might or might not reach, but can reach at the end of the day. And if we give up that principle, it's not just going to be Indians in the New World. It's not just going to be unborn infants. It's not just going to be uh, black people in the United States. It's going to be lots and lots and lots more victims. Because stages of, what, how high in IQ? How tall do you have to be? The point, of course, is it's all mere historical accident. It's all specious reason. And you look at that Roe v. Wade decision, it just turns your stomach. Because the same historical travesty is being committed by the same, same spurious logic. And they sit there and go, well, you know, in the first trimester, the state has no need to protect what's wrong. The second trimester, there's a slight need for the state to look after the interests of the unborn. And the third trimester, maybe something, you know, they're a little greater, so forth and so on. And then birth and humanity happens. It's nuts. It's a violation of full human personhood and the consequences for that violation, undermining our culture, genocide, etc. These are three good ethical principles. They're handy dandy. Most students will agree on this. Most students will agree on this. Why not just utilize these principles? Because when they agree with the principles, it's really hard to disagree with their application in slavery, Indians in the New World or unborn human life. It's all part of the same weave of the same principles. And the same harms are part of the same weave of the same erroneous and spurious reasoning and the same evils and agendas that follow from them. Enough said. Natural rights. There are three principles of justice and natural rights. And I'm just going to go back to the very first one. Let's first kind of get a sense of justice, right? The whole point of justice is to give everybody their due. The point of justice is I should not take from you what rightfully belongs to you. You should not take from me what rightfully belongs to me. If I do a job for you that's worth two bucks, you've got to give me two bucks. 
and not 20 cents. And so we see distributive justice, collective justice. Plato and Aristotle did a fantastic job talking about justice, defining justice as the what right and balanced relationship between what is owed and what is given, what belongs and what is respected to belong. Okay, now, let's for a second uh, suppose that the principle of justice is a good thing. And most kids will do that. Uh, most kids will say injustice is generally not good. They do that, by the way, out of self-interest at first, right? Hmm. If I don't give you, then I don't get me either, so I better, okay, I'll go with that one because actually, you know, uh, I don't want to be the victim of the injustice that I would like. But most kids have a heart. They don't want injustice to be fallen upon others simply because of an absence of regulation. But now we go back to the time of tyrants, right? Because we've got good old Machiavelli out there. He's written a book called The Prince. And in that book, uh, Machiavelli uh, essentially has um, indicated that the tyrant can do just about anything uh, in order to protect the power of the sovereign, right? So you can lie, steal, kill, you can do it. And it's all justified. And this takes us back to good old St. Augustine. And St. Augustine was well aware of Plato's and Aristotle's, well, mostly Plato's works on justice. And, and what St. Augustine said was this. We need to, as Catholics, drill it into our minds. Justice is the ground of the positive law. That's what Augustine declared. Justice is more fundamental than the positive law is a declared law, like in a legislature or a court or a constitutional convention or a case precedent. Right? That would be the positive law declared by a human being. But justice is the ground of the positive law. And why, says Augustine? Because the positive law must serve justice. That's the entire point. Justice is the principle that allows the society to prosper. If you have injustice, you cannot have a common good. If you have injustice on a grand scale, if you have violations of the principle of non-maleficence on a grand scale, there's no possibility of having a society, no possibility of having a good culture, no possibility of having a common good. It's all over. So the positive law must serve justice, said Augustine. And then he went so far as to establish a principle which every political philosopher since his time has literally copied. Therefore, one need not obey an unjust law. That's what he said. Principle of the unjust law. Now, of course, we all know today that this becomes, you know, rapidly the, the ground of, you know, I mean, Edmund Burke is quoting it, you know, Lord Acton is quoting it. But, I mean, today, you know, you've got uh, Gandhi and, and Martin Luther King, right? The letter from Birmingham jail clearly is quoting this principle and so forth. And finally, of course, you get to the final point uh, with Henry David Thoreau that actually says civil disobedience is a natural outlaw. You must resist an unjust law. You must grind against it, against it, against it. Because, says Thoreau, quoting Augustine, justice is the ground of the positive law. Now, once we get that into us, and now you go to the atmosphere of Machiavelli, right? Got all this stuff going on. Machiavelli is just still out there. He's just codifying what tyrants already believe. 
And let's go back to 1620 to a Jesuit by the name of Francisco Suarez, who wrote a book called De Legibus. Honestly, Suarez was a brilliant lawyer prior to entering Jesuit, brilliant metaphysician, wrote many metaphysical works, but he's trying to think of a thorny problem, a Gordian knot, and he's trying to get himself out of it. And he's trying to say, all right, what can we do to make sure that justice as we know it becomes the ground of how we conduct ourselves? How can we solidify this without having to have courts declare it and legislatures declare How do we make common sense justice known to everyone so that everyone will observe it irrespective of what a court says or a legislature says or constitutional convention says? So he's thinking about this, thinking about this, and he says, this is what I think. I think that there are three things, he says, that need to be protected in order for there to be justice, human flourishing, and therefore avoiding violations of the principle of non-maleficence, right? Avoiding unnecessary harms. What do we need? Life, liberty, and property. And he calls it, instead of justitia, justice, which means the right relationship among people, he calls it a yus, just like a thing, almost like a parasite. You know, it's a characteristic which belongs to you. It belongs to each and every one of you, according to your human nature and your human existence. You have it. It belongs to you. Now, he takes that notion and he says, so you have something in you which is like a possession. It's what everybody owes you. Everybody owes to everybody else the use of life. You don't have a right to take away anyone's life if they have not done anything to jeopardize you or any other innocent. You don't have a right. You owe them this use, this right to life. And it belongs to you. You don't need a court. You don't need anybody to declare it. You see what I'm saying? Everyone owes everyone a right to liberty. That is to say, not to be enslaved by another human being. So I owe you the right not to be owned by me or anyone else. That you have appropriate autonomy over your own personhood. We all owe this to one another. We can't go around owning people and enslaving people Right, Because you're going to have injustice, violations of the principle of non-maleficence, and you're going to not be able to have a common good and a culture and a society. So we all owe this to one another. It's like a social contract, etc. And we all owe one another the right to some private property. And, and why? Because if I can own all your property and make you buy everything or get everything from me, I turn you into an indentured servant. And if I turn you into an indentured servant, you're as good as enslaved. To the company store, to the serfdom of the... He he declares this in this book, De Legibus, and here's old John Locke. And he's reading these things for his doctoral dissertation research. And click. 
It's the way to avoid a tyranny of the majority. Locke's living in a different era now, right? He's just a little ahead. Now the plebiscite, the vote, is becoming more and more important. whole idea of constitutions and declarations and so forth and so on. But Locke is conscious of something, a fearful, terrible thing. That 51% of the people could vote out 49% of the life and liberty of other people. The vote in and of itself is imperfect. How can we guarantee that life and liberty and property are not in the hands of a vote, are not in the hands of a state, cannot be declared by government. Why does, is Locke so anxious not to have life, liberty, and property declared into existence as rights by the government? Because if they declare them as existing, they can declare them out of existence. So he doesn't want any declared or extrinsic right. So he's looking at Suarez and he's just saying, oh my gosh, the guy did it. So what does he do? He puts it in the second treatise on government. And the Second Treatise on Government, we know that Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson read that baby. And when they read it, what did they do? Well, they changed property to pursuit of happiness. And listen to these words, everyone. By the way, Ben Franklin had an IQ just off the charts, and Thomas Jefferson was right behind. These guys weren't idiots. They knew very well what they were doing. We hold what? These truths to be what? Self-evident. Automatically, if they're self-evident, they don't have to be what? Declared into existence by a government. Now you say to yourself, how do you know that they did it for that express reason? I ask you then the probative question. You have this great debate going on during the Constitutional Convention. Will there be a Bill of Rights or won't there be a Bill of Rights? Federalists are battling the anti-federalists, right? The anti-federalists are scared to death, right? My gosh, if you declare a Bill of Rights, what's going to happen next? The minute you say that the government can declare rights, they can take them out of existence. People might get the feeling that these are all the rights that there are. How are we going to guarantee that there can be, and so forth and so on? Ask yourself one question. In the midst of all this battle that's going on, what three rights didn't show up in the Bill of Rights? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Oh, by the way, happiness doesn't mean emotional excitation. <laughs> happiness means fulfillment as a human person during that time. That's a much different view of happiness. It's much more, it's not like the Latin litus or Felix, it's like beatitudo. So they mean it in a very dense, sophisticated, important, opportunistic sense. Not, I want my strongest emotion fulfilled right now. Okay, so the key thing then is, once we have that off the ground, you look at that, and they left them out. Why? I mean, here are the three most important rights, declared to be self-evident truths. Why? Why would you leave them, of all rights, out of the Constitution? It was done purposely, and one must imagine that it was. It's unimaginable that the three fundamental rights upon which the French Revolution, upon which John Locke's Second Treatise on Government, which moved the entire spirit of the world, it's unimaginable that they would be left out of the Constitution unless it was done purposely. And why would they have left it out purposely? Because they didn't want any mistakes to be made. No government ever declared those things into existence because no government has the right to do so. They belong to you by your very human existence and by your very human nature. And by the way, we find this to be self-evident, not in need 
of any subjective justification by a governmental body. Now I get to the heart of the matter. You go to the Roe versus Wade and Dred Scott decisions, and you look at what has been done, ladies and gentlemen. You will not find a single word about natural or inalienable rights in the entire Roe v. Wade or Dred Scott decision. It's like they don't exist. These we call errors of omission. And errors of omission, they sometimes, I don't know whether the Supreme Court didn't know. I don't know what they did know. I don't know is it culpable error of omission, but an error of omission it is. Because poor black people and unborn infants suddenly are deprived of natural rights and all they have left at the end of Roe v. Wade and the Dred Scott decision are constitutional rights, which are declared rights, they're extrinsic rights, they're not the same as natural rights. They were left off the table, and then the court in both instances declared that they are looking for constitutional rights as the sole guarantee of the life and the liberty of these people. It's nuts. But it was done. Oh, by the way, in another life, I actually uh, talk about faith and physics. I saw a wonderful correction of a terrible error of omission by Stephen Hawking the other day. Uh, there's a proof called the Board of Lincoln and Goose Proof, which shows that every universe and multiverse have to be in inflationary condition. And our universe is definitely in inflationary condition. All of them have to have a beginning. And a beginning in physics requires a creation, because a beginning in physics is a beginning of physical time, and that's just the universe. This Board of Lincoln and Goose theorem, right? This is well known. This is a well known theorem. I have been talking about it for the last two and a half years. My history channel showed it last week, talking about it. Other people have been talking about it. But Board of Lincoln and Goose were silent. It was like Hawking comes out there and he says, there's no evidence for creation. There's tons of evidence for creation from physics, from entropy. There's tons of evidence for creation from uh, the Board of Lincoln and Goose theorem. I mean, we're talking about a creation of the whole physical universe and physical time itself. And wondering, Hey, why are these guys signing? Well, on Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday celebration, this is juicy indeed. I mean, Alexander Vilenkin comes up in front of the entire audience. This is so wonderful. And basically says, you have been ignoring all of my research and all of the research that has been done into the law of entropy. You have been ignoring it since that, uh, well, he didn't say ridiculous book, Grand Design, but you have been ignoring it for many years. Now, what I would like to say is, you're wrong. And here's all the evidence that you have been ignoring this entire time, and therefore, all of the evidence in physics as we currently know it demands a creation. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> Happy birthday, Stephen. What? What's my point? My point is simply this. These errors of omission, right? What's the first rule we learn in logic? There are far more errors of omission than commission, and the errors of omission generally are worse. And this one is a biggie. Natural rights are completely ignored. Then stage two of the sophistry. In stage number two, after the ignoring of natural rights, the Supreme Court in both cases, 120 years separating them, suddenly decides that the only criteria that will be valid are constitutional rights. And both courts then subsequently declare in stage three, subsequently declare we then looked at the Constitution. This is the same wording in Judge Scott and, and Roe v. Wade, 120 years apart. We then looked to see if the Negro had any constitutional rights or if the unborn had any constitutional rights. We noticed 
that there was no evidence for it in the Constitution. And therefore, we declare they don't have rights. Now, I don't know if any of you took Logic 101 from a Jesuit, but if you did, I just have one thing to say. You're going to recognize two fallacies in that statement right now. In legal evidentiary procedure, what does silence mean? Nothing. Silence, you are prohibited from construing that it means something positive or something negative. If the witness remains silent, I can't say, da-ha, he therefore means he's guilty. Or, da-ha, now we know that he really meant to affirm statement X. You can't do that. The silence of the Constitution indicates nothing but silence about the rights of the black person and the rights of the unborn child. Nothing more than silence. But there is a second one. I think all of you will recognize this if you took formal logic, negating the antecedent. It's a very simple thing. If a constitutional right can be found, then black people or unborn infants have constitutional rights. I don't disagree with that. If the Constitution declares that black people and unborn infants have constitutional rights, then we can certainly say they do have. The right exists. You can't negate the antecedent. You can't say, aha, the Constitution does not say whether black people or unborn infants have constitutional rights. Therefore, the right does not exist. You can't do that. Logical fallacy. F for the course. It's a complete elementary logical fallacy. And yet it is done. I leave it to you to be your own judge. Then the fourth stage of the mischief. Now, the burden of proof that we talked about earlier is now shifted. It is now up to the black person to prove that he is a person and has constitutional rights. It is now up to the unborn victim, the unborn infant, to prove a personhood and constitutional rights in order to have his natural rights. And this, too, is a travesty. And finally, at the end of the day, what can we say other than we are literally left with a terrible injustice to millions upon millions of people for no other reason than specious arguments, subjective and unproven assertions, contradictions galore, the ignoring of natural rights, violations, wholesale violations of the principle of non-maleficence. It's just a travesty of human reason, human morality, of natural rights, and of course, of the government that issued it. What can we do? Resist it. I'm sure half of you are here for the March for Life. Good, resist it. Change that law. It is unjust. And not only is it causing terrible harm, terrible unnecessary harm, it is also pressurizing women to kill their children. And inasmuch as it does, we are at a stage where we are undermining our culture, undermining morality, undermining the objective truth. There is a principle which I didn't get to tonight called the principle of limits to freedom. 
principle of Baron de Montesquieu. This, this principle means no government can create a freedom or an option for others which causes an onerous or burdensome duty to somebody else. You cannot grant a freedom to one group that will create an onerous burden to another group. That's the whole deal with government. You just don't go around declaring rights all the time. Rights and freedoms are essentially the same thing from two different angles, right? But they're the same thing. You can't go around declaring freedom all the time. Because some freedoms and some rights for group number one turn into onerous duties and burdens for group number two. And these, says Montesquieu, at all costs must be avoided. And it is the first duty of the legislature and the courts. If abortion isn't clearly laying onerous duties, burdens to die on unborn children, laying onerous duties and burdens on women who are trying to decide between the child that they might want and the pressure that is coming to them from the outside, then I don't know what is. And the, by the way, the euthanasia amendment is the same thing. In Oregon, are you kidding me? I mean, let's just take a look at this. All we want to do is create an option. We're not asking you to take the suicide pill. We just want to sanction assisted suicide for the medical community. What can be the harm of that? If you had any imagination, you could see what could be the harm of that. You could see group number two, group number three, group number four, group number five, we're all going to get undue burdens, burdens to die, by the way, that are going to be shoved upon them. I mean, can you imagine now that we have in Oregon the wonderful aid in dying uh, assisted suicide amendment? Isn't it great that the doctor comes in and says, you know, soulfully to the children, oh, well, you know, your mom's been diagnosed with terminal illness. She has two choices. You know, you could keep her alive with pain protocol. You know, it'll be a little bit more expensive. Or, you know, she could do aid in dying, assisted suicide. Oh, thanks, doctor. So the children go and dutifully report this to the mother. Mom, you have an option. Uh, you can take aid in dying, which is assisted suicide, or you can get a pain protocol and live, which will be a little bit more expensive. I mean, hello, if this isn't an undue burden, if this is not an onerous duty, if a child is suggesting suicide to the parents, this is suggestive of a great deal of pressure. And then you have little malevolent children who sometimes put a lot of intentional pressure on. And then you have people in economically marginalized situations. Can you imagine this? Did you ever think this was going to happen? This happened two months after the Oregon bill passed. The Oregon state medical system has an insurance plan that is attached to it for people who have a lower income so you can have an option to, to be in the state system. Most people are in the state system. This one lady, uh, you know, who's, the case is recounted in the book here, the poor thing writes to her insurance company and says, you know, I would like uh, the drugs in order to live longer in a pain protocol place. They say, no, we, we're not covering that any longer since aid and dying was passed by initiative in the state. We will fund your assisted suicide, but we will not fund your drugs and your therapy. By the way, this has happened on multiple, multiple occasions where people in lower economic classes are being, as it were, forced to take assisted suicide because they won't get any coverage by the state insurance system, which was their only recourse. Great. This is an onerous duty. What's my point? Roe v. Wade, Euthanasia Initiative, 
Dred Scott decision, Indians in the New World, it's all part of the same weave of evil. We have these principles that have protected us and enabled our civilization to burgeon. And they are being recklessly abandoned and undermined by a court system that really doesn't even know what it's doing. Half of it's out of sheer ignorance, the other half out of really malevolent agenda. But the point is, it's happening. We have to restore the principles. Otherwise, we're just like St. Thomas More, right? Son Roper, what are you going to do? You cut down all those laws, all those trees, and you go chasing after the devil, and then he turns around on you, and where will you hide then? Well, the point is, the principles, they do three things for us. Number one, they protect civilization. They're worthy of our kids' learning. Our kids ought to know the ten universal principles of civilization, frankly, before they leave high school, certainly before they leave college. It's the one thing that will protect our culture because it's almost assured that they will embrace them. Number two, the principles make an irresistible case because these kids will tell you, I adhere to that principle. I don't think you should cause unnecessary evil. I adhere to the principle of justice. I do think that there are natural rights. Yes, I don't think there should be tyrannies of the majority. I don't think unjust laws should be obeyed, etc., etc. They'll go along with everything, the solitary thing, and at the end you go, well, how do you find on slavery? And how do you find on pro-life? Pretty hard to say, I don't want the principles I agree with applied. Number three, go back to the principles. And I think you will find that these principles... All of them are commensurate with our faith. And I think you will find that as we make the case on the basis of principles, we show the sophistication of the case, we use slavery or some other issue as a foil over against which to see the heinousness of the decision that has been made. At some point, kids are going to say, my church was wise. I mean, it's not just because of Suarez or Las Casas or Augustine or Aquinas, and all the various things, principles that came back to these great theological thinkers. But it's because the church had the wisdom to see and apply them. And now it is up to us to try and do that as well. I think it can deepen their faith. I think, frankly, one of the kind of proto-apologetics we can have are the principles of the pro-life movement. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, Father Spitzer. Uh, we're going to come back together, those that can stay around, for just a short Q&A. My question is regarding the personhood amendments and whether or not they're ideal. I've heard arguments for and against, and what is your perception? Yeah. Well, I think uh, a personhood amendment, of course, is a very good thing. You know, in the words of old Hadley Arcus, better get uh, legislation against partial birth abortion. Do that now, and then tread right into the, the next step and the next step and the next step. However, no matter how correct the gradualist approach is, I do think it is necessary at the same time to take about five birds with one stone because the one thing that is clear from this talk is that there are five interrelated issues. Personhood, non-maleficence, natural rights, limits to freedom, right? We need to take these five interrelated issues and try and see if we can get one big massive thing 
that exposes the problematic character of Roe v. Wade and then will correct all of the sophistries at once. And the reason is the sophistries are all interconnected. So we don't want to leave some of them out of the picture. Let's try and get them all in one fell swoop. Does that mean we have to be longer about it? The answer is no. We just have to be smarter about it. And of course, don't use me, you know, just because I'm long-winded. The key thing is be smart about it. We can do it. We can find the right kind of personhood amendment. But let's go for the gold, and let's try and get all the sophistries done in one fell swoop if we can, because they're all interrelated. Thanks. Hi, Father. Yesterday, the Catholic Secretary of HHS announced that even Catholic organizations which provide health care to their employees will be compelled to provide birth control as part of that insurance as well as abortive patients. Yeah. Archbishop Dolan from the USCCB yeah. said that the USCCB will fight that in the courts. Yeah. These are the same courts you just described which are not interested in justice and don't follow any ethical principles. If we're the church militant, when and how will we fight? Well, no, I, I totally uh, agree. There are many prongs to fight this with. First, let's do it in the courts. Let's see where we can get. I think in this particular case, it really is going to be a pretty high standard of proof is going to be necessary in order for this uh, declaration to become a, a real law. So we may have a fighting chance in the courts. And there are a lot of people who work for the Thomas More Society and other institutes that are devoted to pro-life law who think that we might be able to win. If we don't win, the first thing we have to do is continue to educate, educate, educate. We have to get this into the hands of people where they can actually begin to discern for themselves because eventually you can see how the law is controlled by an agenda. The third thing is we've got to start thinking of some real ways of doing civil disobedience, very much similar to what maybe Gandhi utilized and Dr. Martin Luther King utilized. We have to get some effective ways of doing civil disobedience. I know that a lot of people get arrested at the abortion clinics, things of this nature, but at some juncture, we just have to start making it come onto the political agenda of the politically driven justices that this is just going to cause a lot of misery, but we must do it in a Christ-like way. We have to do it in a peaceful way. We cannot be guilty of the very crimes that we are trying to protect against. We've got to keep holding up to our principles, and we've got to make those principles come into the full view of the people around us when we do the, our protests, do our civil disobedience. We have to start publishing our principles. We need to get a manifesto, and one day we will have a manifesto. One day we are going to have effective personhood amendments. We are going to have an effective civil disobedience, and we're going to have an effective educational campaign. That's how the abolitionists did it. Let's face facts. When the Dred Scott decision was passed, only 12% of our citizens were in favor of abolishing slavery altogether. And look at how they did it. Look at how Wilberforce did it in England. We can do this. We can do this. And we must do this for the sake of our culture and country. Thanks. Thank you very much, Father Spitzer. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, 
please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.